Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today, we're going to be examining, is the Catholic Church in Scripture? That's right. We're going to look at the biblical roots of Catholicism with Brandon Vaught, talk about things like purgatory, Mary, the priesthood, the sacraments, and so much more. All of the things that you've wondered about the Catholic Church, whether we are biblically based and where we started, this is the episode for you. topic. Uh, really uh, excited to get into this and, and hear from you, Brandon. Welcome to the show again. I think you're uh, you're you're pretty close to our number one oh, guest. Oh, he's so number far. one. He's ran away with it now. I don't even I think I know we it's... talked about it last time, but... Yeah. And you know, Jordan's I'm... totally a number two. I mean, I mean let's... Yeah. You know. All right. All right. That's settled. <laughs> that is settled. And uh, for everybody listening today, I just want to let you know we've got a, a book offer for you guys at the end of this episode that's pretty exciting. Yeah, Brandon's going to offer five of his books for $7. So, dude, it's going to it's the best deal you've ever seen, but wait till you see it when we get there. So, but Brandon, welcome back. It's always a pleasure. Good to be with you guys. Happy to continue locking down the title of the most frequented <laughs> guest on the Catholic Talk Show. That's you right. do say that with a glow in your eye, a competitive glow. <laughs> you, you know, the, the glow in the eyes that I see with people that... Um, realize like especially when it's celebrating mass that this is biblically based you know when people start realizing like wow oh i never realized that catholics do this and this is the reason why mm -hmm. i love walking with people through the rcia or just you know our protestant mm -hmm. brothers or sisters out there that really have never been exposed to the beauty and the dignity of what we do as catholics and then they see that connection and that's what this show is all about to see that connection, it is a moment of revelation of beauty. Yeah, you know, it becomes really easy to dismiss the Catholic Church out of hand by just saying they're not biblical. That way you don't have to actually analyze the claims, the history, and the reality of what the Catholic Church is. Uh, everyone has their biases. They have the church tradition they were raised in, whether it's a mainline Protestantism or it's uh, uh, atheism or evangelical. It's so much easier to dismiss something out of hand than looking at the claims. But when you actually look at the claims, is the, is the Catholic Church biblical? It's a very clear answer, yes and no. Mm -hmm. Catholic Church is? No, no is, dubia. No, there is dubia. Is it biblical? <laughs> yes and no. Is everything that the Catholic Church does find, found in the Bible? No. But I think another question is, does it have to be? Mm -hmm. And that's something that's maybe a little bit hard for people who are so kind of sola scriptura oriented to mm -hmm. understand. And we want to unpack uh, that today. And it's always great to have Brandon on because he's kind of the, he he's the uh, good side of the church. He makes people like us look good when it comes to, uh, you know, apologetics. So Brandon, real briefly, you know, what is the relationship of the Catholic church to scripture? Well, the Catholic Church gave us Scripture. The Catholic Church protected Scripture down through the centuries. The Catholic Church made sure that we have a Bible today. So the, the Bible came from the Catholic Church in the instrumental sense. You know, we, we know the Scriptures are the inspired Word of God. So, you know, in one sense, you could say the Scriptures came completely from God. But it's certainly the case historically that were it not for the Catholic Church, we would not know what books were in Scripture. We would not have the Bible that we have today because it would have fallen into disarray if it were not protected and copied by monks down through the centuries. So the Catholic Church and Scripture are not antagonistic. They're together. Um, the, the Bible came from the Church. I think that's the best way to say it. Yeah, I, 
Jesus Christ did not leave his followers a book. Mm-hmm. There was no such thing as a Bible. You couldn't walk into a bookstore in Antioch in 257 BC, AD and like, hey, give me a copy of the Bible. Like, what's a Bible, dude, that doesn't exist, right? There was no such thing. The Bible is a collection of books. It's, it's, a, it's a collection, a library of holy scriptures agreed upon by the bishops of a council of the Catholic Church. So even as a Protestant, when you pick up your Bible and say, even if it's the Protestant Bible with the seven less books without the you know, deuterocanonical books, you are still giving your assent to the authority of the Catholic Church by saying this is the Bible, because it was the Catholic Church that said these are the books, because otherwise you'd have things like the Shepherd of Hermas and, and the Revelation of Peter and the Gospel of Thomas. There's all these books out there that at one point or another, people considered Scripture and divine revelation. But the Catholic mm. Church is the one who set the canon of the book. So is the Catholic Church biblical? I would say the Bible is Catholic, mm-hmm. is a, probably a better way to state that. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to state it. You know, when we open up Matthew in his gospel in relationship to the commissioning of the disciples and sending them out to all nations, saying, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. And this whole sense of like spreading that teaching, you know, spreading what Jesus commands, you know, he gives us a new commandment. And when they went out to the furthest, you know, corners of the globe and the successors of the apostles have this same charge of Jesus to teach, this teaching took form in relationship to what we now hold Mm -hmm. in the Bible. And then how they taught was very, very different. So you looked at the synoptic gospels and you see the differences of delivery, which is kind of fascinating to think about. Well, the the modalities of teaching, we have to be creative, even in this current generation, like we're taking the same essence of same teachings and now we're digitizing it. We're going out into the global, the, the, the digital continent to establish a proclamation of the gospel too. So it's like we have to get a sense of like what you were describing too to our brothers and sisters that may have a sola scriptura perspective that, you know, this this modality of teaching that Jesus is talking about is is a dynamic reality, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's like uh, you were mentioning before the historical context of scripture and how tradition, you know, is is a lot of times uh, in Protestant Protestantism uh, just kind of discarded. Yeah. And so I think a, a lot of people don't realize that it's the tradition itself that mm-hmm. produced it. Yeah. And so these two things work hand in hand. Um, and and even like even thinking historically about the this commission that was given to the apostles and how they went out for 300 plus years, they're out and nobody has a book to share. Their mm-hmm. training writings are underground. They survived all this. The Edict of Milan made it legal. They all met together for, a, you know, a, 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 what, what do you call them, a synod or like a council, council. like a council yep. to put all this stuff together to, to make it more concrete, yep. the faith that we share together. I also think <clears throat> about Paul. Paul's like, remember the stuff that I told you, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's literally... Yeah, and send my jacket. Is, I left my jacket yeah, in the house. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he's literally telling them, remember this. Yeah. This is tradition. He's... Literally in scripture, he's speaking of this tradition of carrying the gospel to all, all ends of the earth. So, Brandon, how did the Catholic Church get this reputation among Protestants as being unbiblical? What are the roots of that? 
Yeah, yeah it was a really creative strategy that sprung up in the Protestant Reformation period. Um, but if I could take one step back and just underscore what, what you guys just said here, you're referring to in Second Thessalonians, St. Paul says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. So Paul himself is already making a distinction between traditions that are written down, the Bible, and then traditions that are passed down orally or culture to culture, mouth to mouth. And he's saying, hold, hold to both of these. It's not just the written version that you guys need to stick fast to, but to all of the that was passed down to you. In fact, that word tradition just comes from the Latin root, which means to hand down, to deliver. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to do here. But to zoom forward to the Protestant Reformation period, um, it was a very sly tactic, I think, of the Protestant reformers to try and isolate the Bible from the rest of tradition and then try to show that the Catholic Church, which gave us this Bible, is anti-biblical. Um, again, I think at the fundamental level, if you understand history, you see that, well, the Bible came from the church, so the church can't be anti-biblical in its essence. Uh, but then even when you get line by line, you know, the, the obvious follow-up question is, well, in what way is the church unbiblical? You know, which doctrine, which belief, which teaching uh, contradicts the Bible? It, it, it's not enough just to throw the blanket accusation that the church is is unbiblical. So maybe we'll get to some of those specifics here in a moment. Mm. Yeah, and we get those comments all the time. And I, I think one that we could lead with, and this is one that's a stumbling block that I think is the most painful for me to see, because it makes, basically makes a lot of Christians orphans, is that the Catholic teaching around Mary. That's really hard for them to accept. They really say that it's unbiblical and you're, you're idolaters. Uh, that's one of the most common things that we get in our comment sections is you guys worship Mary. And we don't worship Mary. But, you know, where are some of the teachings about Mary? How is that biblical? Because there's nowhere in Scripture that says this or that according to them about Mary. What, what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, the Catholic part of me wishes that there were a line in one of St. Paul's letters that says, Mary is the mother of God, the Immaculate Conception, and all Christians should reverence her and pray the rosary. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it doesn't say anything, it doesn't say anything that direct. Um, you, need, you need to understand what the scripture writers are trying to do, the way that they write, the genre in which they write in. And once you do, you see Mary appears everywhere. And I, I mean literally from Genesis through Exodus, through the Gospels, through the Pauline letters to Revelation. Let me just give like a, a one-minute tour real fast. So right at the beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 3, God utters this fascinating prophecy after Adam and Eve fall. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. The woman's offspring will strike at your heel, at your head, while you will strike at, uh, her, at their heel. Obviously, Christians from every tradition read this as pertaining to Jesus, but what few of them do beyond Catholics is understand that this is actually a prophecy of, of Mary, that Mary is being foreshadowed here as the new Eve. Again, most Protestants understand Jesus to be the new Adam, but then the question arises, well, who's the new Eve? Who's going to undo the sin of the first woman? And so that's the first place Mary's foreshadowed. Moving forward to Exodus, we hear about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contains three items. It contains the Ten Commandments, which are the law that was given to Moses. It contains the staff of Aaron, so the symbol of priesthood. And then it contains samplings of the manna, this mysterious bread that came down from heaven. 
Well, the earliest Christians read Exodus and they saw that as a foreshadowing of Mary because within Mary's womb, she carried Christ, Christ who is the fulfillment of the new law, the new eternal high priest, and the bread of heaven, the true bread that will give us eternal life. So there again, they see already God is foreshadowing Mary in a special way without explicitly mentioning her. And then in the Gospels, Mary appears at every major moment of Jesus's life. She's there at his conception. She's there at his birth. She's there at, at his first public miracle. She's there at the foot of the cross. Um, she's everywhere. Moving forward to the rest of the New Testament, there she is at Pentecost, at the coming down of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, zooming forward to the book of Revelation, we find in Revelation 12, this mysterious moment where the Ark of the Covenant, after having disappeared for hundreds of years in the Israelite wilderness, reappears suddenly in heaven. And the ark is associated with this woman who is crowned with stars and she's the queen of the sun and the cosmos and the moon. Um, she's undeniably the queen of heaven, but then it describes her giving birth to this son who's attacked by a dragon. Won't get into all the details, but what's clear is that this is another pointing toward Mary, the mother of God, as the queen of heaven who's reigning right now in heaven alongside Christ and who is the fulfillment of the ark, which is now present in heaven. Um, so that's a, a very quick snapshot of how the biblical writers from the beginning of Genesis through the end of Revelation center Mary as one of the key figures in salvation history. And that it helps explain why Catholics put such a great emphasis on her role. Yeah, I, I like the fact that there are prayers to Mary older than any Bible. Mm -hmm. You cannot find a Bible subtuum. older than the Subtuum. Mm -hmm. There is a document of the prayer of the Subtuum, but you cannot find a collection of mm -hmm. the Bible older than that. So even before Christians had the concept of compiling a Bible, they had prayers to mm -hmm. Mary asking for her protection. That doesn't jive with the Protestant mindset that Mariolatry only kind of came about in the 15th century after, you know... Uh, Charles Borromeo or whomever, right? Like, it is fundamental to what Christians have always believed. And I think if you even if you look at the view of the queen mother in uh, Hebrew culture or in near Middle East culture at the time, the queen mother would have been the supplicant who was waiting in the courtyard before you would enter the throne room. And you would go to the queen mother who would then relay those prayers because it comes as a softer request coming from the queen mother. Well, that's a very similar concept to what Catholics have with Our Lady. She doesn't grant prayers. She is not a goddess. She has no divine power. She's like the moon who reflects the light of the sun. And that's all Catholics believe of her, and that we believe that if we are to be like Jesus in all things, we should love his mother as she does. And no one can love Mary more than he does. Mm -hmm. So when people talk, you know, junk about Mary in our comments, I'm like, Good luck going at your final judgment and saying that you spent your time on earth talking junk about Mary in the comments of YouTube. Let's see how that works when you tell that to Jesus at your judgment, you know? <coughs> so I think that's a, that's a first objection. I, I think another one is the saints. And it's very similar, you know, that they're like, well, where are these saints? You guys are just basically pagans. You're, you're replacing pagan gods, you know, with... You're saying so that every city used to have a pagan god who was the patron saint of volcanoes. Now you've got a saint for it. You know, it's just Roman pagan religion in a new name. How do the saints show up in Scripture, and how is that a biblical practice of Catholicism? 
Yeah, I mean, you can approach it from one of two angles. First, just what's explicitly mentioned in Scripture, and we mainly find the saints present in the book of Revelation. Again, it's a it's a painting of, you know, a, a figurative, metaphorical painting of what the heavenly life is like. But there we find not just Christ and his blessed mother in heaven, but all of these saintly figures um, sending their prayers to the Lord. Um, they have golden bowls full of incense, and those bowls are representing the prayers of the saints. That's what we read in Scripture. So that confirms the Catholic belief that um, certain holy people, when they die— um, find themselves in the presence of God, either directly or after a period of purgation where their remaining sins are purged from them. They're saved. They're welcomed into the presence of, of God. And because now of their closeness to God, they're able to intercede for us in a heightened, more powerful way. Um, I, I find that when I talk with my Protestant friends that um, it clicks when they when they realize that they already take this approach to especially holy people on earth. So I'll ask them, like, um, do you ever ask your friends at church to pray for you? And they say, oh, yeah, of course. Okay, well, how do you determine which ones to ask to pray for you? And they say, well, you know, those that I'm closest to, or, you know, I ask the pastor to pray for me, or those, you know, that I know are especially holy and have stronger prayer, a stronger, deeper prayer life. Same conception for Catholicism, except we raise it up to the degree of all of history. You know, who are the holiest people? Who are the, the people who are closest to Christ's ear? And those are the people we turn to for help. Now, that doesn't mean we can't pray directly to Christ. If we can and we do. But we can supplement that by asking all of our heavenly friends to pray for us as well. Brandon, I, I love that response. And what a great catechetical expression in relationship to the saints. I've, I've used something very similar in, in uh, my pastoral care for people, too, just trying to explain to them that, you know, these saints are, are, have the privilege of being in the presence of God and the depth of prayer and their communion with God is far superior than ours. And that's the direction we want to go. Like, that's the whole <laughs> sense. And you mentioned, like, the biblical roots of things before and, like, hot topic you know, button, you know, and you, you mentioned purgatory, like the sense of purgation already. And, and I can't imagine something being more misunderstood by our Protestant brothers and sisters than purgatory. What's the biblical foundation and the roots for purgatory? Is there? Yeah, there is. There's a few classic examples. Now, again, purgatory, similar to the Mary question, is a case where the doctrine is not spelled out fully and thoroughly in any one piece of scripture. You know, I wish that it was dogmatically defined in one of the books of Scripture, but what we find in Scripture are allusions to purgatory and hints of purgatory. So the classic example in the Old Testament is in the second book of Maccabees. Judas Maccabeus is praying for fallen comrades who died in battle while wearing amulets that were dedicated to pagan idols. So they did something horrible. They were wearing these these you know uh, amulets with idol figures on them. They died. And yet, after they died, Judas Maccabeus was praying for their souls, that they might be forgiven and find salvation. Now, in the Protestant Reformation period, a lot of the Reformers rejected the 
both books of Maccabees, but especially the second book of Maccabees, in part because they thought it supported an unbiblical doctrine. So they, they said, well, that can't be a book of scripture because it's affirming purgatory, and we know purgatory is anti-biblical. Therefore, that book is to be rejected. Uh, but Christians for, for centuries have accepted 2 Maccabees as part of the authentic canon of scripture. That's Old Testament. Moving on to the New Testament, um, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Kind of a mysterious phrase, right? Why separate those two things? You, you won't be forgiven in this age or in the age to come, which suggests that there's a period after this age in which you still might be forgiven. Your sin still might be purged. And then finally, in St. Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians 3.15, we see this reference to this purging fire. St. Paul says, if the work of your life is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. And that's basically a, a definition of purgatory. Purgatory is not a third place you might end up, like heaven, hell, or purgatory. Purgatory is a stage on the way to heaven. So everybody who has ever existed will either end up in heaven or hell. But there are many people, perhaps most people, that before they get to heaven still need to be purged of the lingering stain of sin that they still have on their soul when they die. Attachments they have to certain sinful behaviors, certain sinful residue, if you want, still on your soul, that will be burned away through this figurative fire so that you can be pure and enter the presence of God in heaven. So all three of those, none of them explicitly say, here's what purgatory is. I'm going to define it dogmatically. But they all allude to a doctrine that all Christians held to until the moment of the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, it's, a, it's a great mystery, too. Uh, one that C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce kind of illustrated so beautifully in an allegorical sense. Mm -hmm. um, and, and my understanding is that he's not even Catholic. So there's, there's a lot of, lot of ways to, to extract this mystery and, and to, to, to think about it and imagine, yes. imagine it. St. Augustine also had, had some insights here too. And I like pairing St. Augustine with the insight of St. John Paul II. He said, the essence of sin is this, where we turn our eyes away from the creator to what he has created. And St. Augustine expressed that, you know, what's commensurate to our uh, purgation experience is that our hearts must turn from the, the created order back to the creator. And that that it's commensurate to the way that we love and attach ourselves to uh, possesses possessions like other people, um, you circumstances. know, circumstances, all those yeah. types of things. It's like on the job training. Look, man, you can't go from one job to another without training. You're <laughs> going to go from this life to the life of heaven without any training, without any like, hey, this is how you act when you get there. Like, it's like a halfway house when you get out of prison. That's not too. I've never heard that before, and I like it. It's a halfway house. <laughs> You know, you mentioned C.S. Lewis, and he's so revered by most Protestants, arguably, you know, the great patron saint of Protestantism, if you will. He was an Anglican, a very high Anglican, close to Catholicism in many ways, but still a Protestant. And yet he famously believed in purgatory, which, you know, troubles a lot of Protestants. In fact, he said, our souls demand purgatory, don't they? If you want more on that, read his book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. Uh, but he says, I, I assume that the process of purification before the next life will involve suffering, partly from tradition, partly because most real good that has been done in my life has involved it. 
And so he says, not only is it a beautiful idea, but our souls demand the idea of purgatory before heaven. I think when Protestants say, well, where is that? Point me verse and passage. Where is that in the Bible? I don't think they know what they're doing when they say that, because if you were to turn that question back on them for something as fundamental to the faith and undeniable to all Christians as the Trinity, show me anywhere in the in Scripture where it says, God is a triune God of the Father, Son, and the Holy. There is none. It's all inferred through the baptism in the Jordan and from the transfiguration and from, you know, the sayings of Christ. Like the, It's not in there. Same thing with even the concept of sola scriptura. There's nowhere in the Bible says only the Bible is to be followed. And if you follow anything besides the Bible, you're going, you're wrong. And this is a manual for how to live. The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible says opposite. The Bible, like in James, you know, cling to traditions. Tradition is the pillar of the church. You said the second Thessalonians. And even your logic that there is no book left behind Jesus. He's like, hey, real quick, I'm about to hop on this cloud. Go sit at the right hand of my father. Here's the book. This is, you know, I know the whole rising from the dead thing was cool, but the book is really the reason that I came. This is what it's all about. It's not. It's a relationship with Christ through the salvation that he achieved for us through the cross, and it's a real lived experience, not a book. Well, you can you can also look at the dynamic of the book itself just being writ- written mm-hmm. after circumstances of God interacting in people's lives. So mm-hmm. it's like the chicken or the egg, right? Yep. There had to be God interacting into people's lives, right? We, we, we talk about Israel and, and Exodus and all that. It, it had to happen for them to actually put pen to paper. Right. You don't write the Psalms without experiencing mm-hmm. God's mercy or whatever it is that you're writing about. We just did a show on the Psalms. So there is a there is a driver here, a first mover, to yep. use the Aristotelian thing, that without it, you, you really can't have Scripture. Otherwise, it would, you would just be a robot that God was using to just write something out. That's it's, right. like, it's like St. Luke, starting out chapter 1, verse 1. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the Word have handed down to us. You know, it's like, it's, it's all captured. Exactly. Right there. Right there. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> well, that's an underutilized apologetical verse. Well, you know, look, go. here's the reason I'm writing this book, by the way. You know, all these other people are doing it, you know. And, <laughs> oh no! Look, you can't sneak a dead cat around around Jerusalem without some guy writing a Bible. So you know, I might as well do it too, right? Uh, All right, we pretty much refuted that. Well, yeah, there you go. And, uh, I, I think you said Ryan a little earlier that at, at this period, this is so critical for for all Christians, but especially Protestants to understand is that for the first few hundred years of the church, there were many gospels, letters, writings, uh, prophecies floating around that many Christians thought were divinely inspired. They were read in churches, certain communities treated them and reverenced them as much as they would the four Gospels we had. Again, it wasn't until the end of the 4th century, most historians place it at the Council of Rome in 382, that the canon of the Bible, a canon just the table of contents of the Bible, which books should be included, that it was definitively and authoritatively established. So a good question to ask a Protestant is, let's say you were a Protestant in the year... 210 AD, before the Bible was definitively settled, how would you know what to believe as a Christian? How would you know what to believe about heaven or hell or purgatory or Mary or the saints or the sacraments? Where would you turn? Um, There was no book that you could refer to and say, well, if it's not in that book, I'm not going to believe it. There was a bunch of different writings. 
Well, that was this wasn't a problem for the early Christian community because they knew where to turn, which was to the bishops. The bishops were the successors to the apostles. Christ had given his authority to the 12 apostles. Those apostles then passed down that authority to their successors, the bishops. And so it was the bishops who were authoritatively determining what was in bounds and what was out of bounds for the Christian religion. And that ultimately included which biblical books were in bounds or out of bounds. So uh, that paradigm, I think, is is very foreign to many Protestants, that uh, we just assume the Bible is the, the fundamental determinant of what's Christian and what's not. But that's not, that's not how Christ established his, his uh, faith, is he, he grounded this new movement, this new religion on the church as embodied in its apostles and, and their successors, the bishops. Yeah, that's a great point. Also, you know, you consider just the deposit of our faith, um, the the creed, like all these things were, they, they weren't just formed out of people just sitting around saying, this is what we believe. They were formed from errant teachings, right? So you talk about the errant teachings of these, these, uh, these books that were flying around. Well, the church has in, in centuries has received all this mm-hmm. errancy and then, and they've gotten down and they've written out what is what is true. Yep. So you have all all of that in historical context too as well. That's right. You know, and that's not to say that Catholicism is not biblical. There is nothing that you could find in the Bible that would refute a Catholic practice. But there's things that Catholics do that are not in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there's, there's some nuance, you know, and just to say, not in this book, then it doesn't count. I, Brandon, I love what you said. That really is 15th and 16th century German propaganda amongst a bunch of princes in the Holy Roman Empire to seeing who was the more powerful duke elector of the Holy Roman Empire. Like, if people understood the historical context of the evolution of even Martin Luther and how he's basically a pawn in a geopolitical game, they'd be like, wow, man, I am being robbed of the church Christ gave me because I'm still being rolled up into this mess that happened because of the disunification of Germany in the context of the Saxons and the and the Teuton, the Teutonic Knights. Like, people want to believe simple, easy to digestible things because then it allows them to have a core belief that then they can move on with their life. Mm. But life and reality and spirituality are not that simple. And it's like Augustine, you know, see comprehendus nonus deus, right? If you understand it, it's not God. Well, reality is that if you understand history, you probably don't really got the full story mm-hmm. of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think somebody said, you you might know who it is. Uh, somebody <laughs> said uh, to deny the, the, the Catholic Church is to, to deny history. John Henry Newman. John Henry Newman? To be deep into history is to cease to be Protestant. John Henry Newman. Yeah, there's yeah, that's is. what I was trying to say. Wow. Yeah, he would. But isn't that him. powerful? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you know, jumping back in, there, there's a few more that I want to go out to because I went through our comments and said, okay, what are the ones that look? I could type out answers and go research them, but let's just get Brandon to do it because Brandon, <laughs> number one, he's really excellent at it. You know, he works with <laughs> Bishop Barron. You know, then they've got similar mannerisms and they kind of got similar grasp on um, apologetics here. But he's also got a great platform called. Claritas you. He's written tons of books. Guy knows his stuff, so I'm lazy. So instead of typing, I brought on Brandon, right? And speaking of attributes of Brandon, apparently Brandon has a mean crossover and could destroy Ryan Delacross in a basketball game. your ankles, and that is scripture. That is word, word. 
Um, that is that is in scripture. That is gospel. Ankles. <laughs> All right, so let's get on to one that I, you know. <laughs> well, we got two things over here. We got we got. Big statue of Mary, and then we got this priest here, right? Being all Catholic priesty. Protestants don't love either of that. So let's start first with Our Lady of Statue. Catholics are very, I don't know, forward in our liturgical artistic tradition and our patrimony of scripture and iconic uh, icons that we use to teach and relay mm-hmm. the faith through tradition. Catechism. Protestants in a lot of sects are very, very against that. And they say, you guys are directly breaking the Ten Commandments and you guys are idolaters and you're no better than, you know, the Israelites in the desert wanting to worship a golden calf. How, how would you respond to that, Brandon? Yeah, I deny it, first of all. But then I, I, I point out the delicious irony that in that same book of the Bible, which describes the Israelites worshiping a golden calf in the desert, namely the book of Exodus, uh, God also commands the Israelites to carve statues for a religious purpose, namely the two cherubim, which will sit on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. So clearly God is not against statues, religious statues. Um, he's against worshiping them, and that's not what Catholics do. We treat statues the same way that everyone treats pictures of their loved ones. So you might ask a Protestant, well, do you carry pictures of your loved ones in your wallet? Do you have a picture of a loved one on your phone? Yeah, Why? Well, you know, when I see it, I remember them, I think of them, maybe at the highest religious dimension, I pray for them. Same thing for us, same thing for us. When we have statues or images or icons of holy men and women, it's it causes us to remember their deeds, uh, to be inspired by them, and as we talked about earlier, to ask for their prayers because they're in the highest uh, levels of, of heaven, closest to Christ. So I'd say there is no biblical prohibition against statues. In fact, just the opposite. God commands constructing them. But what God doesn't want us to worship statues, and Catholics don't worship statues. Well, I, I, I hate to bring up the H word again, history, but um, <laughs> that's a very direct thing he just spoke mm-hmm. about. But more indirectly, the Catholic Church has used art to evangelize the culture um, for, for centuries because people couldn't read. And like you were saying before the printing press, a Bible was very difficult to come by. It was a protected, it was a protected asset of the church because there wasn't so many of them. And so obviously art and statues were used by the pastors to explain stories in scripture, uh, because they couldn't read. And to just, and to just inspire religiosity. There's nothing wrong with being in a religious space that inspires religiosity, which draws your mind and your heart up to God. I mean, we are temporal and um, incarnational beings. And, you know, we get into a church and we see beautiful statues and it puts us in a place to where we start to contemplate the things they represent and worship the God that orders it all. Man by nature is always seeking and searching and, and the sense of, you know, death, this mystery that we all face is, is veiled, as Isaiah expresses. And, you know, you see the practices of humanity, whether or not they're uh, a particular denomination, or re- but religious by nature, they begin to, like, light a candle in front of an image of somebody's face that is a loved one. And they're, mm-hmm. and they're trying to light so that they can see it beyond this veil. Like, I know that there's something beyond this grief. I know there's something beyond this. And in the same manner, it's like, you know, we're, we're lighting votive candles or we're lighting in, into 
into the darkness of of this experience of of sin and death, you know, we're 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 pursuing this mystery with this with this longing and this searching, this seeking of of uh, looking through that that veil. You know, look at the, if you look at the ancient world, right <laughs> at the time when these prohibitions against worshiping statues would have been written. They literally thought that this statue was literally their god, mm-hmm. right? Like if if the the Babylonians or the Akkadians came and stole your god, well, your god was now subject to those people. Like <laughs> your god so was funny. sitting in their warehouse, right? <laughs> that's, no, no, that's so funny. But that's you know, it's, it's not funny to them. It wasn't cross. funny to them, <laughs> dude. You just stole, you know, Jabu, dude. Not cool. Right? <laughs> it's Jobu. Well, maybe to you, <laughs> heretic. No, but, but that was the concept. Like they literally thought that you were worshiping a god, and and God was like, "No, these are things. Mm-hmm. These are not representations." And the reason that there was the prohibition against making a statue of Yahweh, because he didn't want the complication of people worshiping a creation as if it was the Creator Himself. Mm-hmm. Okay, but to a strict prohibition against any iconography or statues, that's simply not there, simply not the intent. And anybody else who would say that, again, is just kind of falling for the Protestant, anti-Catholic... Um, yeah, nonsense. You know, yeah, nonsense. Yeah, unfortunately, like, for the past four years, this may or may not be a good example, but, like, for the past four years, uh, you know, I've been in an interim building that is not really sacred space. It's not architecturally designed to be sacred space. It's not intended to be sacred space. I think space. it's holy rich. But, you know, like, when I first went in there... I, I walked in and it was like they had two beautiful statues over a hundred years old from Philly that that they scooped up and and but they were in the corner and they were like kind of facing you know nobody there mm-hmm. and I'm like and I'm looking at what is our sanctuary I'm like how can we you know accent this space so that people people can be drawn into the mystery of Christ's love for them and then the the trifecta of having a most beautiful crucifix, also a hundred-year-old corpus of Christ, and then those beautiful statues I moved to uh, the corners of, of, of the sanctuary space, and it drew the attention to the altar, and, and it's creating in the interim process. So please, if you're out there, help me build this church. We need to raise funds because I want to get into a sacred space. I'm getting tired. You know, <laughs> I, I want to get into a true sacred space, but it helped tremendously set the liturgical setting for our devotion to to really be incarnated in the practice. I, I got one that's not on the list yeah, I'm kind of curious about, because um, you hear it a lot with, like, you know, uh, pastors and, you know, all that. Not not Catholic pastors, but it's like they, they kind of throw—it's kind of new, too. They kind of just weave it into it, and it's not really direct, but it's basically like you don't need religion— Right. And I and I see that obviously as, you know, hey, you don't need a hierarchy. You have the Bible and me. Right. Yeah. Right. But but it's my actually... Bible and me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ding. <laughs> so like where where does that I mean, I, I think it's kind of new. Right. It's a I've decentralization been... of Christianity and of Christendom. Yeah. And it's a it's a rejection of authority. Commerce. Right. Yeah, several years ago, there was a super popular YouTube video made by a a young Protestant spoken word poet, and it was called Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. And it kind of summed up that whole spiritual but not religious uh, worldview. Uh, My first response is, well, you know who loves religion 
is God. <laughs> if you read if you read the Bible, you'll see a God who cares deeply, deeply about the way we worship, who intricately arranges the the motions, the choreography, the architecture, the mood, everything about the way we worship has a particularity to it. God nowhere in the Bible says, "Well, just do whatever you want. Come to me however you want." Um, he prescribes a very clear path. Now that path changes along the way. It changed the the way that the ancient Israelites worshipped in the desert is different than the way Christ calls his followers to worship um, uh, in the New Testament period. But even Christ, you know, even Christ brings bread and wine and says, "Do this in remembrance of me." He doesn't say, "Well, you know, do whatever you want in remembrance of me, or use whatever you whatever symbol you want." No. Do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so I don't think you can read the Bible and come away with the idea that God cares little about religion. What matters is that you love Jesus. I, I don't think that's a biblical worldview. And I think, again, that just flows from this whole decentralization, mm -hmm. de-Christendom concept um, where they don't, I mean, again, they don't want authority centered in the church, even though that authority was placed there by Christ because it challenges their earthly power of the people who would want to break that kind of power. I, I guess the last one I think we can go over here is this one's going to relate directly to you, you know, being the cassock wearing priest that you are, right? Oh boy. Um, Protestants would say, look, there is, but well, number one, I'm not going to call this guy father. Why would I ever do that? It says call no man father. That's pretty straightforward, right? But the concept that there's a priesthood and they have to listen to a priest in particular? No, I have the Bible and I could read it and that I have the power to interpret the scripture through the Holy Spirit, who is the interpreter of scripture. And what do I need you for? What do we, Brandon, what do we need Father Rich for? <laughs> well, fundamentally for the sacraments, the, the, the priesthood was given to us so that the priest in a special way could lead the people of God in worship through the Mass, but also to administer the other sacraments. This is a totally biblical idea. So in fact, the very word priest comes from the Greek word presbyterer, which appears throughout the New Testament. The Book of Acts especially talks about the presbyters and doesn't really define their role in the nitty-gritty, but it does describe things like the laying on of hands or preaching and teaching. Um, the Book of James, we find them uh, uh, commissioning the, the sacrament of anointing of the sick. Um, we also find uh, references to the episcopos, which is the episcopacy. That's what we call our bishops. So there are clear, explicit references to both priests and bishops in the Bible. Um, just to tie a bow on what you said at the beginning about call no man father, this is an old canard Protestants bring up. The Bible says call no man father. Catholics call their priests fathers. Ergo, Catholics, you know, are, are anti-biblical. Uh, clearly, when Christ gives the command to call no man father, he doesn't mean this literally, um, because in several places in Scripture, we see spiritual leaders referring to themselves as spiritual fathers. St. Paul calls himself a father of faith. You refer, the Bible refers to Abraham as your father in faith. Um, so clearly, there's not a literal problem with calling spiritual leaders father. He's making a point about not raising any man above the place of God. So I think those two things can at least show in brief compass that the Catholic priesthood is not unbiblical. You could do a lot more to show how it's explained and unpacked in the Bible, but it's 100% a biblical position, presbyter and episcopos, priest and bishop.
Yeah, now we've done an episode, and I'll put a link up there, where we went through all seven sacraments and showed you the biblical proofs, the biblical scriptures and verses that talk about those. So to get deeper into that, you can cover that. But uh, I know what's interesting, though, to me, like kind of following up with what Brandon just said, like I've I've been in a number of ecumenical circles and and with uh, Protestant pastors and, and ministers, and it's just interesting because I haven't I've never thought about this until right now in this conversation, but they always call the church fathers of the church fathers. Yeah. Well, the church fathers don't agree that you should call a priest father. <laughs> Wait, what? What did you just say? Just now? Yeah. It's like the father. Okay. Yeah, that's no. That's, you know, and here's the other thing. You see all of these places. Now, you don't need a priesthood. It's just me directly to God, right? It's me and Jesus, and Christ is the priest, right? He's the high priest. We don't need any priests. And then they all have a priest under a different name. You know, it's a, you know, it's, it's a presbyter <laughs> or a pastor or an elder a or a leader they got or the bishop. We all need it. You know, if we come back human full circle. We all need it, right? Yeah. We need a hierarchy. We need a centralizing authority. We need somebody to deliberate and judge and come to conclude reconciling. We need all that, you know, and they have committees and things like that oh, too. They govern the, they're the not church. called priests or father though. So they're biblical. <laughs> oh, come on. It's the same thing under a different name, you know? Um, but do you know what's not the same thing under a different name? The most... Well, okay, now look. Here's the thing. Whenever we have Brandon on the show, Brandon always comes, and he delivers, right? He breaks ankles, he breaks minds, <laughs> breaks Protestants' <laughs> worldviews, right? And gets them into the church. But we always expect in return that he makes a world-breaking offer, okay? Now, if you've watched any of the shows that we've had with Brandon, and they've been numerous, Brandon's our most frequent guest, he always has a great offer. I'm not just saying this is the best offer he's ever made right now for you to be able to learn more about his books and the programs that he offers through Claritas U. Brandon, lay it on him. Tell him what this amazing offer is that we twisted your arm into offering. Okay. Yeah, you you asked me to step it up, and so here's what I did. <laughs> I brought a stack of books with me. So there's five books here that I've written that I want to give to anyone who wants them for $7 with free shipping. Not just one person we're going to draw and there's a contest. Anybody watching this... I want to mail you all five of these books for $7 with free shipping. Now, the reason I'm doing this is because it's it's my mission, my vocation to help Catholics get clear and confident about their faith. That's the mission God's given me, and I think these books will do a lot to help with that. So real quick, first one, it's called Why I Am Catholic and You Should Be Too. So this makes the case for why Catholicism is true, good, and beautiful, and why everyone should be Catholic. The next three are my What to Say and How to Say It series. So this tackles all these hot-button issues Catholics face, things like uh, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, abortion, contraception, a lot of the things we've talked about here, Mary, the Bible, purgatory, hell. And I teach you exactly how to talk about these things clearly and confidently so you won't be nervous or anxious next time they come up. So there's three volumes of that. And then finally, uh, my latest book is called How to Discuss Abortion with Pro-Choice Friends and Family. So in the wake of Roe versus Wade being overturned, abortion discussions are now returning to the states, which means it's super important that every Catholic learns how to make the case for why we should protect the unborn. And that's what this book does. So you get uh, all five of these books, plus I'm also adding a, a month of access to my Claritas U platform, where I teach a bunch of video courses on even more hot button topics. So all that, $7 
free shipping. I, I don't even know where you can get, you know, a single book for $7 these days, much less five of them for, for seven bucks with free shipping. I'll tell you, so the Catholic is. talk show That's is where right. you can find it. I was telling the guys before we started, I said, look, we're going to have a bunch of Protestants watching this and they're going to, they don't like us. Right. And they're going to be That's like, you guys are wrong. At all. You're all wrong. Everything you said is wrong. But even if that's the reason you're watching, Protestant friends, get these books anyway, dude. This is such a good offer. You should just take them and resell them and put a couple you know of books what's, in your You know pocket. what the truth, though? Yeah. You know what is beautiful about our show? We have so many amazing relationships with brothers and sisters that are coming from different church backgrounds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just, at the parish here alone, just people have come to realize the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of the church, the biblical foundations, the roots of who we are. And there is a new evangelization that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And I want to say on behalf of the Catholic Talk Show, Brandon, it's always such a blessing to connect with you. And, you know, it's what you're doing along with Bishop Barron, Word on Fire, and with Claritas You and the books that you're writing, it's just, it's exciting. It's an exciting time in the church mm -hmm. because people are moving back into the embrace of Holy Mother Church. And it's really powerful to see. Yeah. Now, I have all these books. I actually literally have. Have copies of all these books, and I use. How much did you pay for them, though? I paid full retail price because I'm, <laughs> I'm a sucker. <laughs> I, I should have listened to my own show. I should have done this a long time ago. But yeah, if you go to CatholicTalkShow.com/forward/slash/Brandon, you can take advantage of this offer. It's five books and a month of Claritas U for seven dollars. No shipping, free shipping, five books. It's almost it, it. It's nonsensical to not take this offer. Take these. It, it would be out. unbiblical not to take the offer. <laughs> <laughs> really, because they say that a dog, like a dog, returns to its vomit, so a fool to its folly. And it would be folly not to return to these books and go to CatholicTasha.com forward slash Brandon and take advantage of this offer. Uh, Brandon, it's always a pleasure to have you on, and you speak clearly. And like you said, that it is kind of your charism. And I think if people are watching this and they, they, they like how clearly you could speak on it, I think that just shows what they can gain through Claritas you and these books. But again, always a pleasure and running away with the lead as the all-time most uh, frequent guest. Snapping ankles. <laughs> <laughs> he's still he's he's feeling hurt about this. We gotta we gotta reconcile this, Brandon. We gotta get a one-on-one -on -one match going pay, on over pay the per parish. Pay-per-view. That's, that's right. right. That's right. Well, my friends, it's always a joy to connect with you at the Catholic Talk Show each and every week, delving deep into the beauty of our faith and drawing into that closeness of the oneness that Christ wants to see in the world among us. So know of our love and our prayers for you. Please continue to share the love and prayers for us. And if you're considering becoming a financial supporter of the show, go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Patreon. You'll see every way that you could support us. And we have some great swag to send your way to say thank you. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.